Good morning, friends, and happy Sunday. Uh, I hope you're doing well, and I'm really glad we have this opportunity to spend together uh, this morning. Uh, one quick announcement. Um, a couple emails have gone out, one yesterday. Uh, please remember our Adopt-A-Senior efforts uh, this week. Uh, we have three high school seniors at New City uh, this year, and because of everything uh, they've lost uh, and are going to miss out on uh, this last semester of, of high school, uh, we wanted to send them off uh, with a blessing, with a smile, uh, with a care package. Uh, so a list went out with each of our, our seniors and their likes, preferences, favorite candy, etc. You should have gotten that email yesterday uh, from Paige. It's super easy. If you have an Amazon account, um, buy it on Amazon and ship it here, and we'll we'll kind of collect and, and put it all together. But but please consider that uh, in this week ahead. Uh, something you can do for uh, our seniors within the school. Um, that being said, uh, if you have your Bibles, let's open to Genesis chapter 6. Uh, we're picking back up with our study in the book of Genesis, and rather than tell you which verses we're going to read, um, what, I, what I've done is I've selected a number of verses from chapter 6 and chapter 7. Uh, this morning is a great opportunity just to sit back and listen, or you can follow the text that's printed uh, in the email liturgy uh, that I sent you with. Uh, the sermon. So we're going to begin in chapter 6, verse 1. Let me let me start here. Uh, there's traditionally two ways that people look at this story of Noah uh, and the flood. There's, there's two ways. There's two versions. The first version uh, is this. It's like the Sunday school version. Um, you know, Noah is, er, is sticking his head out of a window and waving at you. Uh, the waters are calm, uh, the blue skies, you know, there's like a pair of tigers and a pair of pigs like on the top shelf or the top deck of this, of this boat uh, and they're not going at each other. Um, you know, there's a rainbow in the background, uh, a dove flying with an olive branch in its mouth and, you know, it kind of looks and feels like a Disney cruise. That's how some people read the story. That's one version. Here's here's another version. Some people read this not 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 like a Disney cruise, but it feels like an episode of Judge Judy. Um, think about it this way: everyone is wiped out across the globe, across the world, sparing none but the eight that were on this on this ark. Everybody is destroyed. And so rather than the Sunday school version, you know, the, the Disney cruise version, this kind of feels like the biblical version of Clash of the Titans. We, we're just dealing with a, a very angry and wrathful God, and we skim over it because we don't know how to handle that. Well, what I want to suggest is, is, is that an appropriate reading of this text uh, is reading both of these versions of God into it. It's not one or the other. It's not a God of grace, and it's not just a God of, of justice. But, but God is um, who he truly is when he's both. Uh, he's a God of justice, uh, and he's also a God of grace. And I think you see that clearly here in this passage. So let's, let's revisit this old story together. This is Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to begin in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through men, excuse me, through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, a number of us will remember this story, uh, perhaps vividly. Uh, it was 2014, and um, there's this terrorist group uh, called Boko Haram in the African country of Nigeria. And they had captured, uh, kidnapped, and terrorized almost 300 young schoolgirls from Nigeria. And, and it wasn't just Nigeria who was up in arms, who was incensed about this. The whole world was incensed. Uh, the whole world was in an uproar. The world wanted two things. The world wanted to see these young women freed. And the world wanted to see Boko Haram dealt with severely with no quarter. They wanted two things. They wanted the girls to be freed and they wanted Boko Haram dealt with and taken care of. And, you know, what was interesting about this story, again, it wasn't just local, it was international. Uh, people from, you know, countries across the world were sending letters to their leaders and to presidents saying, we've, we've got to do something. We have to do something on behalf of these girls. And, and others became even more incensed because they thought um, their leaders weren't weren't moving fast enough, or they weren't doing enough on behalf of, of these young women and on behalf of, uh, of these terrorists. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting thought that, you know, usually uh, the, the world is, you know, at odds with one another. We, we can't agree on anything. But when it came to Boko Haram, when it came to these 300 school world, 300 school girls, the world was united. Everyone agreed for the most part that the girls needed to be freed and these terrorists need to be dealt with severely. Um, so here's a question I want you to think about. When it comes to this, this internal appetite for justice, this, this zeal for things to be made right when they're, when, when they're going so wrong, uh, where did that moral compass come from? Where did that appetite for justice originate in us? Did you know that it comes from God? That when he made us, he put his image into everyone. So this is not just believers. This is, this is everyone. Uh, has, you know, to different degrees, this, this sense, this need, um, this passion, this zeal for, for justice. Uh, everybody was sensing, you know, with Boko Haram that, that things were dire um, and that time was of the essence. 
Um, and this was us reflecting, you know, God's heart back to the world, um, that God is a God of justice. Um, what would it say about God uh, if in, in the face of great crimes and atrocities like Boko Haram and, you know, the Nazi party of, of World War II, if, if, if God didn't do anything uh, about some of those events? What would, it, what would it tell us about God? What would it say about him? We, we would accuse him of being aloof. We'd accuse him of being unjust and perhaps even cruel. We want a God who is just. We want a God who is going to, you know, not just look at evil and, and, and turn a blind eye, but do something about it, right? That's the kind of God we want. Um, so in this passage, we're going to see two things. We're going to see uh, on the first hand, you know, a God of justice, but also a God of grace. A God of justice and a God of grace. Uh, so first, uh, a God of justice. Um, let's think about uh, our exercise of justice. I just mentioned, you know, that you know, the reason why we have such an appetite for it is because um, that's the way God made us. He put his image into us. And, and we want to see things made right because that's what God wants. He wants to see things made right. Um, but what's the difference between his justice, uh, which is perfect, it's always perfect, uh, and our justice? Um, there's a difference. Our, ours isn't perfect. And, and here's why uh, our earthly justice, when we exercise um, that muscle, uh, why it's imperfect. It's because we can't see everything and we don't know everything. You know, DNA testing is, is kind of a new phenomenon when it comes to um, crime investigation. And what we found over time is that, you know, people that have been accused um, and sentenced for, for crimes that, you know, after DNA testing, you know, we found that it wasn't their DNA at the crime scene, it was somebody else's DNA. So they've been freed. They've been exonerated uh, from their con earlier conviction. Um, you know, why is our earthly execution of justice imperfect? It's because we can't see everything and we don't know everything. And this is why, this is the difference between our justice and God's. God's is perfect and ours isn't. It's because God sees everything and God knows everything. Look back with me at verse five of chapter six. And, and this, is, this is one of the, you know, the, the biggest haymakers, um, one of the most important verses in the Bible when it comes to understanding who we are. Um, as, as people, as, as a people, what condition uh, we're born into. Here's what the Lord says, and notice how thorough this statement is. Chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, that, that's a pretty watertight statement. You know, God's not just looking at our actions. He's not just looking at our behaviors. He can see our motives. He can see our heart behind our actions. And he knows why we're doing it. Are we actually doing it because we care about other people? Or are we just doing it for self-promotion? God can see and know everything, unlike us. And that's why his justice is perfect and why ours is imperfect. So, so why is God doing that here in this passage so early in the story? Again, we're only six chapters in to the biblical story. Uh, why is God executing this global justice now? Um, again, go back to verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Um, there, there's no herd immunity when it comes to sin. There's no pockets of this world of going, okay, they're, they're okay. Um, they're, they're not affected or contaminated by this. No, the, 
the problem is, is because we're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and we all have um, envious, murderous hearts like Cain, and we're all adulterers like David. We all have, we're all sick with sin, and we're sick to death with it. It has covered the entire face of the earth, um, and it's all-inclusive. Sin does not discriminate. It's indiscriminate. It affects everyone. It's what we're born into. It, it's, the, it's our state. It's our condition. It's, 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 it's how we show up uh, in rebellion uh, against God. And like we said last week, not only are we in rebellion, but we can't see it unless somebody shows us. And even when somebody shows us, we don't want to see it. We want our, our true condition to stay hidden. Uh, and, and this condition has, has affected everyone across the globe. Everyone. No one is exempt. We're all sick to death. So this is why God executes his justice and why he executes it perfectly. Um, it's because the whole world was sick with it. Um, but we're not stopping here in the story. Um, the story continues. Now, you know, not only do we see a God who deals with evil justly, but we're going to see a God in this passage who also deals with evil graciously. And we're seeing both in great measure at the same time in the same passage. And that's the way we're supposed to see it. Is God is, you know, on the one hand, just in, in what he does. But at the same time, he offers grace and salvation. So let me show you where we see that in this, this next point. That was God's justice, now God's grace. First, what is God's grace? Uh, grace is that unmerited favor from, from an unobligated giver. Unmerited favor from an unobligated giver. Um, what God is showing to Noah and his family uh, here in this passage is what we call grace. And, and Moses even uses that word favor uh, here in verse 8. Look what it says. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, now here's what this doesn't mean. You know, in all the earth, everybody was wicked except for you know, righteous Noah and, and his family. And because everybody else uh, is, is immoral and is wicked and full of evil and, and Noah wasn't, uh, God's going to reward Noah and he's going to save them uh, because, because they're good and everybody else is bad. That is not what is happening in this passage. That is not the definition of grace. That is saying um, that grace is merited favor from an obligated giver. Um, that's not the message of Christianity. That's not the message of the Bible. And that's not how God works with us. Noah uh, it has the same condition that everybody else on the globe has. And we'll see that in later chapters with Noah. He, he, he's not perfect by any sense of, of this word. Um, but God decides to show grace and favor to somebody who doesn't deserve it. And he's under no obligation to give it. But he gives grace. And despite of, of, of this of this widespread wrath and injustice. He gives grace to a few. And, and here you might be asking or wondering, why the, why the disproportion? You know, only eight people get grace. Why does the rest of the world get wrath? That, that seems incredibly unfair and unbalanced. Uh, why is God being gracious with just a few? And if that's the question you're asking yourself, the real question is not that, it's this. The real question is, why is God being gracious with anybody? Because if Genesis 6-5 is right, 
that all of our the thoughts of our heart are only evil and that, you know, continuously so. And if Paul is right in the New Testament that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, why does God save anybody? That's the real question. It's because God is a God of grace. Yes, he is a God of justice, but he's also a God of grace. Uh, two things to see here, you know, what vehicle does God use to show his grace to Noah and his family? It's a boat. Uh, God says to Noah, build yourself an ark. And what's, what's happening here in, in this, with this word uh, ark or boat is, is actually the Hebrew word for chest. And here's why that's important. When we get to the story of Moses in Exodus 1 and 2, Pharaoh is killing all of Egypt's sons. And Moses' mother, in attempts to save him, she crafts together, uh, in the Hebrew, a chest, uh, which was like this, this floating, um, this, this, this floating um, thing uh, that had a cover on it and that she put Moses into and sent him down the river. Uh, and just like Noah, uh, Moses was saved by being placed into a, a chest. Uh, so what's, what's happening here with Noah would eventually you know, happen uh, to Moses. They're both being saved through a wooden instrument. We're going to come back to that thought in just a minute. So God says, make a boat. This is, if you go into the boat, you're going to be saved uh, from this wrath, this death, and the destruction. So the boat is God's vessel, his vehicle uh, for grace. But there's, there's another element I want you to see here in this passage. It's, it's, not, it's not the boat. It's God's word. It's his promise. And we're going to talk about this more next week. But let me give us a, a teaser on the front end. His grace takes another form in this passage. Uh, look at verse 18. God says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Uh, in other words, um, God is going to enter into a covenant with Noah just like he entered into a covenant, this, this serious, this binding contract that he entered into with Adam and Eve, right? Um, you know, just as Adam and Eve uh, were set free and cut loose uh, in, in this new creation, so too, Noah and his family, uh, by means of this covenant, are going to be you know, set free and cut loose in this new and purified earth, Maybe you picked up on some of the language here in Genesis 6 that goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 in creation about the animals and those that crawl and all the creepy things and the birds of the air. A lot of the language here is, is used um, in Genesis 1 and 2, and it's to show that parallel between the covenants. God's going to enter into this relationship with Noah and his family where he's not just going to preserve you. He's going to preserve you for a purpose. You are going to be that remnant. Just like Adam and Eve were at the very beginning, you are you're going to start things fresh. You're going to start things off again in this new earth, in this new world, and your call is going to be the same as theirs to rule, subdue, fill it, so forth and so on. But this covenant, you know, it doesn't just point us back to the covenant of creation with Adam and Eve. That this this covenant with Noah is actually pointing us forward uh, to this new covenant uh, in Jesus Christ. Okay, a uh, number of parallels uh, to see here. Uh, two things, in fact. First is this idea of, of a seed. And what Moses goes to great lengths to do in this passage is to connect Noah with Eve. 
you know, in chapter five of Genesis, there's this genealogy. And what Moses is trying to show us is that Noah is the direct seed, the direct descendant. He is a seed of Eve, the mother of all who will live. He is a seed. But then you fast forward to Luke chapter three and Luke, Luke chapter three gives us a genealogy, um, not of Noah. It includes Noah, but not of Noah, but it's of Jesus. It starts with Adam, uh, includes Noah, it's got David, and he's showing how from Eve, um, the promised seed that was the one that who is to come, not a seed, but the seed, is Jesus Christ himself. In Genesis 6, Noah is a seed, but in the Gospels, Jesus is the seed. Uh, he is the one we've been waiting for. But notice this too, uh, just like Noah uh, Jesus is coming in to usher a new creation. And both are coming after a great judgment, right? In, in Noah's case, it was the flood. But in Jesus' second coming, uh, he's coming with a cosmic judgment, right? And just as Noah is entering a new creation, uh, a new earth, Jesus is going to establish in his covenant the new heavens and the new earth. And it's so much better uh, than Noah's earth, or our earth, uh, as it is now. Um, here's, uh, here's what I want to end with. Um, you know, when people read this story, a lot of people think, you know, can we really trust the historicity of the story of Noah and the Great Flood? Is it a real historical event? Is it true? A couple things about that. Um, the prophet Isaiah uh, writes and refers to Noah and the flood as a real and actual event. Peter um, gives it a parallel with baptism uh, in his letter uh, to the church. But even Jesus himself references the, uh, the flood and Noah. And here's, here's, here's the parallel between that. Jesus says, just as, as the world was surprised and did not know the flood, when the flood was going to happen and when judgment was coming, so too nobody knows when the cosmic judgment is coming. Just as the flood was a surprise, so too my, my second coming and my, my ultimate judgment is going to be a surprise. So, so here's why we have to understand this as, as a true and historical event. This is not, you know, in, in Genesis 6, this is not the only time we are going to hear about a wooden instrument saving the people of God. This is not the last time we're going to hear that or see that in the biblical story. Um, the ark, uh, once you went into it, it saved Noah and his family. And just as this, this chest uh, saved Moses um, from Pharaoh, so too the wooden cross of Christ protects God's people from judgment. But here's the difference. Noah's, uh, Noah's wooden instrument only saved a few. Moses' instrument just saved himself. Uh, but God's instrument... God's wooden cross, um, all are invited, and many through this wooden instrument of God will be saved, right? The wooden instrument saved Noah from death, but this wooden instrument of Christ on our behalf doesn't just save us from death, it saves us to eternal life with him now and forever, because on that wooden cross, he died the death that you and I deserved. So in that way, Jesus is the greater Noah, the better Noah. And the cross is the better wooden instrument that if we enter into, 
And that if we surround ourselves with, if, if, if we enter into it, we too will be saved to eternal life. Um, two things. Um, this, this story is, uh, is, is both at the same time a pillow and a hammer. A pillow and a hammer. A pillow is a safe place for you to rest and lay your head. So too, this story is, is meant to be a pillow. Maybe you don't need to be convinced that you're a sinner. Maybe you have enough data to draw those own conclusions. Maybe, maybe guilt and shame have overwhelmed you. Uh, and maybe you're, you're, you're feeling flooded and um, burdened by that. Go to Christ. Kneel before his cross. Ask him for those things. Like you offer your head to the pillow, offer yourself to Jesus. Rest in him. He is the pillow. Uh, because only in Christ uh, can your sins be blotted out. Like David prays in Psalm 51, blot out my transgressions. Just as you blotted out people from this earth, blot out now my transgressions. And he will save you. And he will be a place of rest. He will be like a pillow for your soul. Uh, for others of us, um, this passage needs to be a hammer. Uh, it needs to do some wrecking and some demo uh, on, our, on our insides. We're still trying to figure out, um, you know, just how serious um, this COVID-19 business is. But what we already know, and, you know, we're not, we're not guessing about anything when it comes to the problem of sin and our condition. The gospel tells us very clearly uh, we're sick to death with sin. And not only can we not see it, um, but we don't want to see it. And we want that sin to stay hidden. So you can tell us that we're sinful, but we have to be shown uh, that we're sinful. Uh, ask God to show that to you. Uh, if you don't think you're sinful, then you've got nothing to lose by asking God to show you that. Um, but ask him to show you where you're flawed, uh, where you've rebelled uh, against him, how you have a heart like Adam and Eve and Cain and David and Noah and me and you. Uh, ask him to show it. But get this, uh, the, only, the, the only place to find safety from the wrath of God is inside God. If, if this, this passage is a hammer to you, know this and hear this at the end. The only place to be safe from the wrath of God is inside God. Just as Noah found safety inside that ark, what God wants to do, he doesn't want just to, you to have a, a theoretical understanding of him. He doesn't want you just to have biblical truths that you assent to. He wants you to enter into him like Noah entered into that ark, to be one with him, to have communion and fellowship with him. This is the only place where you can find safety uh, from the wrath that we justly deserve. To stay outside is folly. Christ invites you in, and that's good news. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance upon you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen.